Welcome to the Ivy Podcast. We're just two aunties sharing our experience through the lens of one Blackfoot woman and one Anishinaabe woman. And we are Indigenous Vision, an educational nonprofit based in Montana and Arizona. We are 100% Indigenous led, and this is our podcast. Check us out at indigenousvision.org to learn more about our work, make a donation, or play back any of our radio shows and this episode. Hey, welcome to the Indigenous Vision Podcast. We are back. It is officially episode 54, and my name is Melissa. Melissa, so good to see you. I mean, we just saw each other yesterday, but it's been a couple of weeks since we got to podcast and catch up. And It has been. You know, I've been looking at our feed and being like, we're so busy with the cultural humility training and giving our energy, our best selves to our cohort. And I thought, I can't wait until we can press record again. And because one of our listeners was actually in the cohort, which was so cool. Yes. Shout out to Leah Wetzel. Thank you for the love girl and all of the sharing that you're doing on Facebook um, and promoting the training and then also getting Montana people and institutions to start training in culture humility, which is an amazing thing. It's just a, it's just a good way to be a person and, and it's a good way to walk in life and at your place of employment. So here's to good work. Excellent work. So we have been haven't been here in a couple of weeks, like you said, maybe even three weeks, which is really crazy. It's been so a while. How have you been, Suta? Oh my goodness. I'm getting better and better. You know, I used to say, okay, but I want to get back to my positive language. And, and I, I, uh, you know, life can get you down sometimes. And, and I want to say it was part of my youthful Suta uh, when I did my water work and my water research where I was really like, I was really staunch on like my internal dialogue. I was really protective of even my external language. And I didn't use words like hate or kill or just uh, stupid things like that. You know, those really harmful words. And I just didn't put them in part of my lingo. And now that my son is five, he's been asking me more about like, what does this word mean? What does this word mean? And, and he plays video games too. And so, you know, you have to kill like zombies and stuff like that. And I, and so these terminologies are really like prevalent right now in my life. And I'm starting to reevaluate who I was and who I am and who I'm going to become and who my son is going to become. And, and I know our language has a lot to do with that. It's a lot for like how I am. <laughs> but- <laughs> beautiful though. And that's how we are. If anyone's if you've never listened to us, we go deep. Like we are our deep, authentic selves and it's not for everybody. And it's a really great time for me to connect with someone on this level because, you know, working here in Vegas, a lot of people don't go deep. So it's really great to talk with you like this. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. I've been more compassionate these days. That's the word that keeps coming up for me. If we're going to talk about words mm-hmm. is I'm super compassionate. I don't know how this like just emerged in me. Even from just a few months ago, I was pretty, I don't know, not ruthless, but I still had those, <laughs> you know, trollish feelings with deep within me. But lately I've just been ultra compassionate. I think it's a combination of like meditation and reading a lot of books on the cultural dynamics and how this society was formed and how messed up things are. And I've just found so much compassion for people, which is insane. Like, who am I? (laughs) Who are you becoming? (laughs) Right? Like what? 
I know here we go growing up but um yeah it's like I've been the same way and I think I've I've been devouring a lot of books as well too and I I listen to mine I have like huge shelves of books uh everywhere in my my apartment but I've been devouring some books on audible because those have been the easiest for me to do while I'm cleaning up or you know even giving my son a bath I'll have like one headphone in with the book kind of ringing in my ear and and somehow it's I'm still able to like have a conversation with my son at li- listening to these books as, at the same time. And then I do rewind them a lot and and go back. But uh, what books are you lis- like reading right now? Right now, I am just about to finish White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. It is one eternal mic drop. Like it is about 100 pages of just a one long mic drop. And I really hope that... I know it's a New York Times bestseller, so already a lot of people have read it, but more people should be reading this book. And I think we should make a little list on this podcast episode description of some of the books we're reading. I'm also Mm -hmm. reading The Practice by Seth Godin. He's also one of my favorite authors. I read multiple books at the same time, depending on how I feel. So that one's a little bit more inspiring and it's about being in your craft or your authentic flow, which is something really cool. And it's really come help me understand the type of talent that I have and how important it is, even though I have imposter syndrome sometimes. And I think maybe it's not that important. It's super important is what it's helping me understand. I've heard of that author before, but I don't know if I've heard of the practice. How cool. Yeah. I would, I definitely need to get those right now. I'm reading kind of as a follow-up to white fragility and the Peggy McIntosh in environmental studies early in my education, I read um, there's an essay by Peggy McIntosh of unpacking the white, white uh, supremacy knapsack. And it's written by an older uh, white lady. And, and she has such a good lens on um, what white supremacy is. It's not like, you know, the bad white people and and it's not what bad white people do it's just a system of oppression and injustices that are set up that we all uphold even as people of color and that speaks to me so much in that you know that imposter syndrome that you have is that is that internalized racism that we carry with us as brown women as we do our work because we've been told so many times that we don't fit into the mold we don't represent what america is and a lot of times they expect us to have that PhD or an author of a book to do this work. But I think anybody, anybody can really do deep dives into their own identity and, and where we may be perpetuating harm. Yeah. And I was just looking at Katanje, the, the, uh, yes. Oh my goodness. Too. I was watching um her just being mistreated at, during her moment, you know, but that one senator from New Jersey who kind of just like dispelled it all and was like, you know what? We're not going to let them steal our joy in this moment. And I got super emotional, even like went out and bought a newspaper because she's on the cover. I was like, this is a historical moment to see a black woman, you know, getting onto the Supreme Court. But watching just watching the hearings is really cringe, Suta. It's really it is. It is. Mm -hmm. I've seen some clips on Instagram and and it's just um yeah, everything we talk about in class, like they're trying to diminish her intellect. They're trying to like sway her politics, even trying to find things. And I, I guess that's 
you know, part of the job, is it? Is it part of the job? <laughs> I guess that's how American politics are, is like you try and dig up the nasty stuff or if there is legitimate, like I know that one Supreme judge, the Kavanaugh guy who was accused of rape in his college, that sounds pretty legitimate to me. I believe women. And mm-hmm. it, they brought that up when during his hearings and it was like this big deal. However, he still went on and he is still on the, the Supreme Court, which is. It doesn't give me any confidence as a woman who could possibly be raped at any moment, like any interaction. And it's usually people we know, right? Or people who are working with us. And the majority of rapes are by somebody you know. And how is he going to judge that fairly if he's got like any protective biases of, of I did this, but I'm still a good person? I mean, can you rape somebody and still be a good person? and disseminate equal judgment and fair judgment for people who may have done the same thing? It's a pretty heavy question. Whoa, where did we just go? (laughs) This is what we think about. I mean, these are the thoughts that cross my mind. And I see, you know, a beacon of light like Katanji doing her thing and remaining graceful. And it's just, it's so inspiring to see her up there. Like it's, that's like the top level of sharks it feels like like she's in there and she is so together and composed and except when that that one senator was like lifting her up like she she got emotional because she was just like Mm. thank you like i'm you know that's her moment and he was like Mm -hmm. this is your moment like don't let these idiots take it from you because that's what they are they're idiots but it's just this strange reality of american politics and systems and you just seeing it live play out on these two polar sides is always very surreal for me i just watched the movie don't look up and again it was just kind of like paralleling the madness of what this country is like that's what i'm gonna say now and people come at me if i say something that activates or triggers someone i'll be like you know what then just keep not looking up that's funny. Thanks, Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, yeah, it's so interesting. And and I and what Katanjay Brown is going through is the same thing that Deb Holland went through when she was interviewed and questioned about her ability to lead in the position that she's in right now. And it's just, you know, do we really have to be so hard on women of color in places of leadership and 70, a good two thirds? There is not that much Uh, women of color or people of color in executive leadership positions or in high levels of government. So I don't understand the fear around it. And I don't think white people need to be scared of being a so-called minority. Like I've I've been a minority. <laughs> it's, there, there, it's some rough stuff, but I don't think, you know, the diversity, equity, and inclusion movements and the critical race theory, it's not to displace anybody or for me, especially with the work we do, it's, I'm not trying to make white people feel the pain that, that we have historically felt. I'm just trying to, to remove those harms so that nobody has to feel those harms and those pains of of not getting enough or or being kept out of places like like i said like i'm looking for an apartment and i really do hate putting my name on on applications i feel like that's my first red tape essentially of being told no and I have, you know, two or three no's and rejections and, and yes, I am asking for 
I am looking for a duplex or a house where I can put teepees up in the yard. Or if there's like an awesome landowner out there who has a house and a yard or land available. We we have awesome programs. And I was just daydreaming about how we would be doing our TP raising instructionals for youth or after school programs and how that could be open to the community so that the community, non-native people can learn um, some of the beautiful lessons that we have around like traditional historic home structures in Montana, which is the teepee and, and how every nation has completely different styles and teachings around putting these structures up and then harvesting roots and herbs and processing them and having the space to do that. And Missoula just doesn't have like some really cool, like, like a home for these cultural educations. And I know uh, Dr. Rosalind Lapierre over at the University of Montana is, is taking up a lot of this work and with plant walks and cultural education and, and some storytelling around it. But we need like, Missoula is the perfect place for a cultural institute and maybe like a tourism hub to come in because our map work really fits in with, you know, cultural education and tourism. And I would love to see big, beautiful cultural institutes that Canada has a lot of examples of like Head Smashed In Museum, which is a really cool like Buffalo Jump cultural center talking about all of the nations and the Blackfoot people that used Buffalo Jumps and why we did it and how we did it. And and then there's Blackfoot Crossing, which has like huge life-size teepees, like bigger than life-size teepees in their exhibit centers with all of our indoor decorations that we use in teepees and how it's set up. And they're just, it's just beautiful facilities. We have the Missoula Art Museum here, which does exhibits, but nothing like on that level, you know, yeah. I just, I just need a, an investor or a funder or somebody interested in cultural education. And, and I would love to be the person to help bring that to, to Montana. And it doesn't have to be located in Missoula, but I like Missoula because it's just, um, you know, the crowd is already here to support that type of education. And I could definitely see your teepees up. There's so much beautiful land, all of the streams and all of the creeks. And what I found worked in Canada was that they would take over parts of common like public tourist places on special occasions like the summer solstice or special mm -hmm. dates like that would be the time where teepees would go up for a weekend and it would become a cultural event that anybody could come down to maybe there'd be like a small powwow or at least a drum group you know bannock slash fry bread on sale and like a stew, yeah. just a small little event and it would eventually grow like from when I was a kid to see that grow into what APTN now does as Indigenous oh People's Day. Yeah. To, yeah. So it can start really small at even just a community center. I'm sure someone would let you put up a teepee, like just to see <laughs> that up, it would definitely attract people like a real yeah. native is in there with a teepee. Yeah. And well, it would be better if I could buy the house as, as myself, but, you know, as executive director of indigenous vision, I don't make that much. Like I'm just above, above the poverty limit. Finally, I'm still not making as much as I used to make as a water resource specialist or a watershed manager. I'm still about 10, 15 K under under that wow. salary level, but I'll get there. And, and as long as awesome people and institutes keep booking classes to start looking at their own diversity, equity, and inclusion 
efforts and then we'll stay in business and I'll be able to keep my job and hopefully expand it to something that's really big and beautiful. I think that's where it's going. Actually, I feel that's where it's going. This last cohort totally ignited like a new hope in me because it was such a wonderful group and it was such a, and it was a mostly white group, which surprised me. Even with my imposter syndrome, I was still able to tap into them and experience them as mm -hmm. genuine people who wanted to change. And that was really inspiring. So it gave me hope to be more, more open to collaboration with them in the future. So I think that you might find a really good collaborator if you don't have the, you know, the land right now to do your cultural event. But I think that you could team up with someone maybe in Missoula. Yeah. Even for just a weekend, you know, just to give it a try. Right. I know. And then, well, and then I really want to do personally, I want to have that like cultural experience or that cultural exchange and then maybe try to lift my me and my future generation, my son up out of like intergenerational poverty. And I wanted to have like an Airbnb of my own and have these big, beautiful teepees as something that you could rent out for the weekend or a couple of days and, and experience what it's like to live in like a, a totally glamorous, like updated teepee that's off grid and uh, just something beautiful. So I, I would love to to do that. And even if there's a landowner out there that would be like, yeah, put it out on my land and we'll split the cost. Like that's like getting me a little bit closer to getting out of poverty <laughs> and getting some, you know, a new experience and a new. Definitely. I think there's level. people in Joshua Tree who kind of do something like that only with like elaborate tents, but it mm. would be amazing to see a legit teepee because then they can learn how to enter a teepee properly, you know, mm -hmm. and how to sleep in a teepee. And mm -hmm. not only have it be like this cool Airbnb experience, but learn something. It could also be an opportunity to learn about Blackfoot teepees or Blackfeet teepees. Because yeah. the teepees in my area were a little bit different. You know, I worked at a radio station. We had our own teepee at the radio station. So every time we would go to like a big event, we would erect our teepee and people would be like, wow, we can't believe your, you know, promotional merch includes a teepee. Because most stations, they just put up a little, you know, canopy or whatever, but we would roll up with a legit teepee. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And Indigenous Vision is able to do that. It's just like, I don't even have a place to store poles right now. And so I call myself like the richest Blackfoot woman ever. And I own two two teepees, an 18 foot and a 20 foot, and then a child's teepee or like the demonstration teepee, which is a seven foot teepee. And I don't have poles for them yet. Those are easy to get. I'll hire someone from the community and there's a friend who has possibly has someone on her land. And then the permit for those are only $25. Yeah, I'm the richest Blackfoot lady ever. Quite homeless. No place to put up a teepee. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get there though. Uh, I feel it. I totally feel it. Yes, the listener might be listening today. Thank you ahead of time if you're considering anything that I'm talking about and I'm open to ideas and, and just any way to get it done. But um, yeah, I think it's a great way. I don't want to talk about it too much to steal it, but, but an idea I do have that I want people to steal is the, the, like the Jiffy Loop status uh, transition garages. Everybody is complaining about gas prices right now because of the war and <laughs> because 
because pipelines can't afford to stay open due to, did you see that funny headline due to natural disasters and frogs? No. <laughs> and climate. Uh, yeah. So there, a lot of people are like kidding on the pipelines right now because pipelines and resource extraction like this and burning of fossil fuels is, is something that put us into these cycles of natural disasters and it's impacting our hydrologic cycles and and the quality of our precipitation coming down like i don't i don't let my son catch raindrops or snowflakes on his tongue anymore just because i know of what's floating in the atmosphere out there as a missing one class hydrologist but um yeah it's it's just the world is pretty dirty right now but i i don't think it is to a a point that can't be reversed i think the earth has really beautiful healing mechanisms and that if we can stop right now i think there is an ability to heal i know in places where it's gone too far you see those sinkholes like no duh people this these liquids we're extracting actually hold up the earth's infrastructure in like the interior infrastructure and yes volumes of liquid are are required either that's oil or freshwater aquifers but if we drain these and they dry out we have no idea what that geology is going to do in that dried condition and that's where you get those huge sinkholes coming down and yeah arizona is in a predicament of more and more people moving there and they ship their water from the navajo glacier glacial age aquifer we ship water to vegas we ship water to la and it's just we have to really think seriously about where we're locating and the practices we take but yeah that jiffy lube idea it's so we see jiffy lubes and valvolemes you know those quick stop oil change places if you can drop your car off there for a day or two and then figure out how you pay you know five to even fifteen thousand dollars for your car to be transitioned to a biofuel or an electric vehicle in that time i bet everybody would be lining up and financing and getting their car switched over and that i think is a great way to systemically change how we consume resources and maintain our lifestyle at the same time because everybody loves to cruise and drive and and you know you don't have to feel guilty that you're an environmentalist driving a car like yes it does add to your footprint but what can we really do about it? Because that's the system we live in and that's the powers that be. And whoever has the most lobbyists in DC is the system we're living under. And right now, or as it has been, is it's been oil, oil executives and lobbyists that have been in DC doing most of our swaying of legislation and, and, you know, carbon credits and all of this good stuff, even government buy buyouts, payouts, all of that, like, yeah, I would definitely be more inclined to buy an electric car as my mm. first car if everything was truly updated, you know, like if it was easy to just have an electric car, mm -hmm. because I do see everybody wincing now and it's just a different mentality to see the prices at a, at, at a level I've never seen before. And the yeah. guilt is starting to sink in for a lot of people like, wow, we are really doing this to the earth. And we're really tapping in now to our own resources on this continent. And it's, I think, slowly seeping into their brains. Like we are extracting so much now, especially here in Nevada with the talk of Lake Mead being 30% at the level that it was 
when they 30%, 30% Suta. So wow. there's a lot of talk about how much water. And then, you know, I take public transit and I'm riding on the bus down the strip and I can see each resort with so much water, so much fountains, just constantly going 24 seven, just in the name of like luxury resorts. And I'm thinking how much water is this taking up just to show waterfalls, just to do fountain shows with lights every 30 minutes on the strip, just two hotels in general that have like these big fake waterfalls and then the huge fountains. And here they are talking about how Lake Mead is at 30%. And it's, it's alarming to see that lake go down that much. Absolutely. When I used to go to the water conferences, it's been a while since I've been to a a good water conference uh, years, but you know, the information hasn't changed probably, and it's probably getting worse and my stats are old, but I wanted to say that 80% of, of the infrastructure in America has aged and is and is at the point where it needs to be torn down or it needs to be rebuilt. And this is billions of dollars of infrastructure. And I yesterday I wore my my OXDX shirt that's that has a, a horse on it um, that commemorates the time that Navajo people brought horses up to California to protest a dam. And that shirt says, no dam can hold, uh, the salmon will run. Yeah, we think about salmon almost at, at extinction level. My hydrology professor in 2007 saying that cottonwoods will be extinct. The cottonwood tree will be extinct by the year 2050 just because of the impact of dams. So we think about salmon and cottonwoods and those whole habitats that rely on those two species, uh, their indicator species, um, beavers possibly going extinct because of this missing flooding cycle uh, that is taken away because of dams. And so we have some on the up and up dam managers that are trying to replicate natural flooding cycles. And that's so that these sandbars can form in our rivers again, and cottonwoods actually have a place to seed and grow and that they require fresh, wet sand. And that's not happening anymore. So cottonwoods are going extinct. But yeah, going back to that t-shirt, no dam can hold. And as a person who is who is decommissioned, helped decommission a dam and remove it, it was over a hundred years old. The average lifetime of any dam is about a hundred years and it needs to be taken down or rebuilt at that time because then it's no longer safe. All of the materials inside of it, the wood, the cement are all aged to a point where an extreme flooding event can cause a break and have just a catastrophic flood downstream that will take lives and property. And so Lake Mead must is probably getting to near a hundred years old as well. And it's going have to be taken down or or rebuilt but yeah the water conference i went to said that 80 percent of our infrastructure is is aged and needs to be replaced and that includes we still have some cities and towns running on wooden pipes (laughs) and um unreal and the damage that that can cause and so yeah we really have to think about how we build and how we want to build next and and i don't think it's going to be building the way our our ancestors or our predecessors have built 50 or 100 years ago it's it's got to be different because things change totally i loved how you mentioned water day during our cohort. And I did see a couple of celebrities on social media acknowledge it. Selma Hayek was one of them that I saw. She was in the water and mentioned to everybody. And I don't think people even knew that it was water day just a couple of days ago. 
Yeah. But I think a great way to leave off this episode would be like, how can people honor water? Because it's, it's literally all around us at all times. We use it in our toilets. We brush our teeth with it. We're drinking it. We're cooking with it, but I don't think people properly acknowledge it the way maybe you and I do. Yes. Yeah. That's beautiful. So there's a lot of ways, like all, all of your local environmental departments will teach you how to, to re- reduce, reuse and recycle even water. Um, there's special toilets you can buy if you you have the income to do that. There's even new incinerating toilets that I really like that don't even use water. And I'm a big advocate of changing the whole system to not even discharge waste into water or use water to wash away waste. What a novel concept, Tom, but it's an indigenous concept. And, and so right now, energetically or spiritually, if you're a spiritual person, acknowledging the water as a living being, they always say you, you probably heard a water activist or somebody say water is life. Well, water has its own life and is a sentient being in itself and and is the home of many sentient beings we call the suita peaks water people that's one of the inspirations for the whole organization they came to me in a dream and said that they were having trouble getting through some dark water but are there to serve me and i'm guessing the people in the ways that they have historically and ancestrally done that oopsies busy, busy day. But um, if you want to acknowledge water and beyond water day, just even if you don't know the name of the water body you're crossing, just say hello, tell them your name, tell them I see you. I, I want to respect you. I want to work with you in a way that's not causing harm and introduce yourself and then ask for its name. And maybe somebody will get a dream of, of what the river's name is. Yeah. Acknowledge your water say thank you, say anything you want to it. It's a living being. How would you talk to a living being if you knew that it could feel harm and and had troubles? Thank you so much for listening to the Indigenous Vision podcast. You can find out more about us on our official website, including how to contact us, make a donation, or play back any of our music radio shows or this podcast. Don't forget to share with your friends and write a review if you've got time. We totally appreciate you sharing your time with us.